We're going to dive straight into what will be an exciting session. Valuation and risk as the rhetoric action gap on climate mitigation closes. Most rhetoric about mitigation has focused on new energy infrastructure technologies, but there is no longer time left to deploy them at sufficient scale. Mitigation will be delivered almost entirely by closing processes that cause emissions by their chemistry and electrifying everything else. And we won't have as much electricity as we need or want. This realisation shines a new light on both the valuation and on investment risk. Markets cannot currently value climate risk as corporate plans depend mainly on untestable rhetoric. Julian Allwood, who is Professor of Engineering and the Environment and leads the largest and most interdisciplinary research group here at the University of Cambridge, is dedicated to climate mitigation has proposed a new mechanism called ZERPAS to allow proper valuation based on the pre-purchasing access to scarce resources required to deliver mitigation. This, or some similar instrument, will allow investors to revalue assets in the light of future resource scarcity and to reallocate capital towards businesses compatible with more achievable pathways to real mitigation. There is a whole variety of papers uh, available uh, from Julian and his team, including um, at the back table a series of papers. I did say to, to Julian that uh, we are a paperless, trying to be a paperless um, conference as I read from paper. Um, my digital device is failing me this morning. Uh, and, uh, and Julian did remind me that one economy flight to Australia return equals 1.3 million pieces of paper. Uh, so at that point, I thought I should keep my mouth shut. So if you'd like a copy of the... Uh, of the, the papers they are on the back table. Julian, welcome. Please put your hands together. Thanks, Colin. I am absolutely delighted to be here. We have a lot to say to each other, and I'm hoping, as I've said to both Colin and Amanda, that this is the beginning of a relationship with you collectively or individually, uh, and that we've got some important things to share. To try and um, get to the nutshell, the, the punchline of where I'm trying to get to in this talk, these are three public statements last year by three high-emitting companies, British Airways, Shell and ArcelorMittal, all of whom are confident that they are going to be carbon neutral by 2050. And it is absolutely not true. None of them will achieve that. Uh, but, and I'll explain to you why that's the case. But at the moment, as investors, you can't tell. There is no mechanism that allows you to separate the rhetoric on plans to get to zero emissions from the risk of actually delivering on it. And that's because there's a missing financial mechanism. So I'm going to suggest what that might look like and then try and show you that there are, in fact, a whole other range of growth opportunities which are being overlooked in the excitement about new energy technologies which dominates at the moment. Um, to try and put this on a, a straightforward footing at the beginning, um, the discussion about climate uh, change has often, in the last five years, been described as if it was an option as if this was something we could either do, and it's a bit expensive, or we could not do, because it would save money if we didn't do it. That isn't true. And the reason it's not true is not because of sea level rise, it's not because of wind, and it's not particularly because of high temperatures and drought. It's because of food shortage. We are entering an era where we are not going to have enough food. And if we continue growing emissions in the way that we are doing at the moment, talking about mitigation but not doing it, then by the end of the century, that this century, in 80 years from now, 
we're anticipating that a billion people in the, in the world will die from starvation. So that's a way of trying to sharpen your minds about what this is actually about. Either acting on it now uh, is one option, or not acting and waiting till we have a war uh, is the other option. But there is no way of avoiding the issue. The reason that that starvation is going to occur is shown over here. It's a bit early in the morning for putting in graphs with data, and I apologize for that. It unfortunately comes with my job title. Um, the axes here are crop yields, how much crop you get out of an acre or a hectare of land, and the x-axis is the average temperature in a country. The green curves here uh, all reflect crop yield. They're fitted to real data, and they've grown over the last 50 years because uh, we've got better at agricultural technology. By modifying seeds, by improving irrigation and fertilizer, we're getting more crop uh, out of each uh, hectare of land. But as the temperature rises, we shift to the right on these curves. So the data I've got here is for Pakistan, and you can see that crop yields have improved in Pakistan, but at the same time, the temperature is rising. So the improvement in the last decade was significantly less than it would have been, and it's now going to decline. So the real issue about climate mitigation is that we are going to run short of food in the countries near the equator. They won't have the financial resources to buy it, and so they're either going to starve or they're going to migrate northwards. And this uncontrollable migration northwards will lead to a resource war. We won't be able to accommodate it. So there is no question that we are going to act. The only question is whether we do it proactively or we wait for that war to occur. There is almost universal consensus in government circles about what climate policy should involve. And at COP26, there was almost no discussion about what the solutions look like. Again, I think this is... Oh, sorry, before I talk about the solutions, let me just deal with a few red herrings which keep getting in the way of meaningful discussion. Um, negative emissions technologies are a, a red herring. Um, it takes a long time to grow a tree, and there isn't time left to grow a substantial number of trees between now and 2050, uh, because for the first 20 years they're really small. So that's gone. Direct air capture, which is the excuse that Bill Gates uses for flying, uh, involves pumping air through large fans uh, and sucking the carbon out of it. Well, the carbon is only 500 parts per million in the air, so you've got to pump a lot of air through. And to do that, you need a lot of electricity. It only makes sense if that's powered by renewables, but it would always be better to use those renewables to replace a coal or gas-fired power station than to power a vanity project. So there are no meaningful negative emissions technologies. Offsets uh, are discussed as if they were a financial transaction, but they're not. They're a physical transaction. If you choose to take a flight, you've caused an increase in the atmospheric stock of emissions. So the only meaningful offset is something which physically takes that out again. And the only thing we've really got available is trees, uh, but there isn't time to grow any significant number of trees by the date that we have to get to zero emissions. Geoengineering, the idea that we should put particles in the air, that we should put a massive umbrella at the focal point between the sun and the earth, that we should trigger extra clouds, uh, there are people who are seriously excited about this, and you've got a celebrity speaker talking about it at the end of the day. But we have never made an intervention in the natural ecosystem which hasn't had unforeseen uh, consequences. The idea of not acting and leaving to our children the consequences of an untested strategy to increase cloud cover seems to me absolutely morally unacceptable. 
Uh, population growth, very much a uh, favoured topic when I give talks to uh, audiences with a slightly right-wing flavour, um, but the high birth rates are in countries with very low per capita emissions. If you want to reduce the population, focus on Americans, uh, there's really no point, as far as emissions go, in focusing on the um, uh, birth rate in places which currently have high birth rates. Uh, and wait and respond is the other one, and we can't. There just won't be time to respond if we don't start to act now. So it's either act now or face war. Um, this area, as you know, is absolutely rife with greenwash, and there are two reasons for that. One is the huge weight of incumbent interests. The largest delegation at COP26 was the oil and gas industry, uh, and every single committee in the UK government that has an independent advisor has a member of the oil and gas industry in it. They have an interest which, where they are interested in climate change, but it's secondary to their own survival. That's not independent advice. And of course, there are people like me who try to give advice, but to get through the row of everybody else trying to give advice, there is a kind of competition for celebrity. But remember that the difference between being interesting and being true is that interesting is saying something which contradicts what people are expecting, and true is usually a little bit boring. So I'm going to try and talk in a way that's true, but to let you to go and find the evidence to test whether you believe me or not as we go through the talk. Let me return to COP26. I've got two pie charts in the talk. You've got the slides available so you can go and look at the data if you uh, want to do so. This divides uh, the world's emissions into various key categories, roughly a quarter in transport, a quarter in generating electricity, a quarter in burning uh, fossil fuels either for heat or for uh, industrial processes, and a quarter in agriculture and land use change. And the solutions that were universally agreed in COP are that we would deal with transport by a combination of electric batteries, hydrogen and biofuel. Uh, we would supply electricity by renewables, nuclear or carbon capture and storage. We would deal with industry by using hydrogen or carbon capture and storage or non-emitting electricity. And we would deal with agriculture by using negative emissions technologies. There was no serious discussion uh, for example, about the very difficult intellectual concept that an aeroplane is a Bunsen burner where you put fossil fuels in at one end and you get greenhouse gas emissions out the other. It's so easy that every single primary school uh, pupil in the world understands that an aeroplane generates greenhouse gas emissions and the reduction in use of flights was never mentioned in the COP26 discussions. To try and give a structure to thinking about this, um, again, I think my slides, they're clearer on the screen, so the side a bit blurred here. But what I wanted to show you is that whatever activity it is, whatever demand for products and services it is that we're trying to meet, goes about through some set of delivery processes which depend fundamentally on either fuel or electricity. So the fuel, uh, if we move into this COP26 world, is, for example, hydrogen or ammonia or synfuel, which has to be generated by the use of energy. So either it's generated by non-emitting electricity or by some other means and linked to a carbon capture and storage program. The same for electricity supply. And so then for negative emissions, we have to have energy to power the process of taking emissions out of the sky. And the consequence of that is that whatever plan you come up with for climate mitigation always depends on just three resources, which are biomass, carbon storage, and non-emitting electricity. And that's the thing, if you forget everything else I've said, 
if you can remember that those three resources are the root of all climate mitigation plans, it gives you a kind of postcard, a benchmark to test the rhetoric that's being presented to you. Because the obvious question is, have British Airways secured access to enough biomass or carbon storage or non-emitting electricity to deliver on their plans? And they absolutely have not, which is why you can confirm that their plan is so unlikely. Let's give you a sense of scale of those three fundamental resources. Uh, the graph here shows the installed powered carbon storage in the UK since we started talking about it in 1990. Uh, now, I don't know whether you've all got engineering degrees. I hope so, but some of you may not have been good enough to get in. Uh, and in that case, you may know that forecasting involves drawing a line to what's happened in the past and then projecting forwards. So the linear forecast of a history of having no carbon storage in the UK is that we will have no carbon storage in the UK. I think that's not a very risky uh, prediction. Um, with biomass, the current global harvest of biomass for food, the total harvest for all food, is 100 kilograms of dry biomass per person per year. If you think about that, a third of a kilogram of dry biomass per year sounds plausible as uh, a diet. Um, if we use biomass to replace kerosene for flying and no other use of oil, only for kerosene, we need an extra harvest, an additional harvest of 200 kilograms of dry biomass per person per year. It isn't going to happen. We are not going to increase global biomass production by any significant amount. We know that deforestation occurs because we can't get enough harvest out of the land that we're already farming. Uh, so biomass is frankly irrelevant to the future of climate mitigation. And if we look at our non-emitting electricity supply, this is UK data at the moment, then the blue line is the electrical equivalent of our total energy demand in the UK. If we converted everything to electricity, that's the amount of demand we would have. And the orange line is the supply. Again, I've done an engineering analysis and put a generous straight line as my forecast of future supply. Um, it's a fairly realistic forecast, and we're currently slightly behind it uh, based on the rates of growth in the last decade. That's UK data. If I take that to global levels, then here is the pro-oil and gas-funded, pro-CCS lobby for carbon storage, showing that global capacity is growing at 2 megatons of CO2 per year. But remember that global emissions are 50,000 megatons of CO2 per year. So if I show the same graph here, those are global emissions and there is global capacity for carbon capture and storage. It's negligible, it's so small, we shouldn't even be talking about it, except as an interesting R&D project. And if I look at the history of electricity generation over my lifespan, this is 1965 to the present, uh, then you can see that the growth of electricity is essentially linear. These are the non-emitting sources, and it's grown, the gradient has changed slightly in the last decade due to the expansion of wind and solar. But there is no exponential curve here. Energy systems grow slowly because they're big and complex and they require societal discussion. Until you tell the government that you would like them to install an untested small nuclear reactor facility next to your children's school and you don't want to be consulted on that, then it will continue to be a slow process to install new electricity. So to bring that together, I've got a, a final graph before our first discussion here. This is the uh, graph of non-emitting electricity on the y-axis and carbon storage on the x-axis. The red dashed line 
shows where we are today. And uh, we can't see it here. The purple line shows my projection, a realistic forecast of what we'll have in 2050. You can see the carbon storage one is in effect at zero and remains there. You can't see the band here, something's gone wrong with the projection, but this one will roughly uh, double. The entire space being discussed at COP26, the current entire political description of climate mitigation cannot possibly deliver because we won't have enough carbon storage and non-emitting electricity to be able to uh, implement the plans that are being discussed. So that's time for our first discussion uh, before I talk about what the alternatives are. Thanks, Julian. That's a fairly sobering start <coughs> to the day. We're going to have a second section to this in a moment, which will be about the innovation and the entrepreneurship available, the opportunity for investors to overcome all of what you've just uh, learned about. But first of all, you gave three examples of companies, Julian, including British Airways, that are basically bullshitting about uh, any opportunity to get to 2050, to net zero. Um, if you're an investor in British Airways, what's the options? Uh, the fact that you know that there are three fundamental resources transforms the dialogue that you can have with their managers. So uh, the plan they've got includes offsets, but there aren't any. It includes biokerosene, but there is no possibility that we can deliver it at any meaningful scale. And it includes the idea of electric flight, but nobody in the world is developing a battery-powered long-haul aeroplane. There, of course, a few short-haul uh, test flights will take off, um, and so on. So all you need to do is to ask them how much non-emitting electricity, biomass, and carbon storage does your plan require, and have you secured access to it? And I think that reveals that it's a tissue and no more. And if what you say is accurate, and you're a scientist and an engineer and a professor and a PhD and all that, so I guess we can believe your research, how, what, what kind of percentage of companies are actually overvalued right now, in your view? Yeah, that's brilliant. Incidentally, just the fact that I have those qualifications doesn't mean that you should take any notice of me, because uh, my colleagues are in a fight for funding, and the uh, optimism about new technologies is partly spur-fueled by my colleagues here and in other universities, because it's a brilliant opportunity to raise money. Uh, we gave a presentation to the Royal Society, the premier science society of the UK, uh, last year about this, and they said, yes, we know you're right, but our job is to promote new science, so we're not going to say so, which really shocked me that they're meant to be the body with most truth in the UK, but they see as uh, the competition for funding as more important. Um, sorry, that was a slight aside. You companies that are overvalued, how do we, how do we make an assessment of, of you know, you're, you're saying that British Airways essentially in 28 years at this rate will be worth zero. Yeah. that we shouldn't actually be flying as a society by then. So one of the other uh, dramatic parts of our prep call is you feel that at the moment governments are playing to uh, try to deal with climate change in ways that don't actually inconvenience our lifestyles and that are ve fairly invisible. Yeah. And you're saying that whilst we continue that facade, we're in major trouble. Yeah, absolutely, because we know that those solutions can't deliver. But therefore, yes, without any question, they're overvalued. The question is, at what point can you see that happening? At what point are you going to need to get out? And that's your expertise and not mine. And I guess that's where I would love this to be the beginning of a relationship, because I think there's something really important that we could try and do together to try and address the question that you've got. But the key thing, and I guess what I want to go on to in the second part of the conversation, uh, is that there are a whole range of other opportunities that we aren't activating. 
um, and they're the ones that could actually deliver in time and the ones we'll depend on if we don't act anyway, if we wait for war to catch up with us. And just before we move on to the, the good part, <laughs> the opportunity, what are you suggesting, though, is your vision of how humanity start, needs to start recalibrating and living our lives? Um, I think I will talk about that in yeah, okay, the second okay, part, okay. if that's all right. Okay, let's, let's just take any questions on, the, on what you've seen so far. Any comments or questions on the slides and the presentation so far? Disagreements, comments, questions? Yes, please. If you can just grab the microphone, table eight, introduce yourself. You know the rules by now. Your name and organization, please. Hi. My name is Jun Park from KIC. Uh, I just heard like the first half of your uh, uh, presentation seems quite negative outlook. So I was wondering, like, as of this stage, uh, how do you really have to do to bridge the gap between the overstatement and the reality? I think you said the first part was negative. Was that the first part of your comment? I mean... Uh, I, I really want to challenge you on that. Was admitting that COVID existed a negative statement, or was it simply true? Uh, and I think it was simply true. So therefore, out of it, we had to work out how we responded to it. And I think that's all I've said here. I don't believe I've made a positive or negative. I've just given you a bit of reality. Um, and now we can talk about what the real solution would actually look like. Oh yeah, sorry about my expression, but like, I mean, I was just wondering to bridge the reality and I mean, the, the reality doesn't look quite opportunistic at this stage. So like, um, how, how should we do to bridge the reality and the, um, our goal? Okay, again, I know that's really what I want to talk yeah, to in the second, second half. Shall I move on to that? <clears throat> Okay, using the same graph that I ended with, then the question is, what do you think is a realistic projection of the resources that we're going to have available? Um, given that we've in effect got no carbon storage and the rate of growth is in effect zero, then it seems to me that a reasonable forecast is that we will have zero carbon storage. I know that's radical, but it seems to me that's a rational prediction. Uh, so the realistic resources on this axis here how much energy are we going to have available? Well, if I look at that global projection uh, from BP's uh, World Energy Statistics, it says I'm going to be there. That's the amount of resource I'm going to be able to draw on. And for the reasons we've already covered, there's no extra biomass. So one of the three reports I've left at the back and which is accessible through this uh, seminar website is called Absolute Zero. And we wrote a description in 2019 based on that resource available to describe what life looks like. Uh, I'm going to describe that now, uh, but it's had a huge effect in the UK. There was a full debate in the House of Lords in February 2020 about it, and it remarkably stands as the only major reference talking about a real prediction of how we actually mitigate climate change. It's now the second most downloaded document ever from the University of Cambridge, second to Stephen Hawking's PhD thesis, but we're going to overtake him very soon. Um, let me go back to my pie chart. Again, this is a lot of data to look at, and so all you need is to get an impression. I've divided the world's emissions in a slightly different way here. Uh, so transport, and in this case, the use of energy in buildings, mainly for heating, air, and water, but also cooling. This is industrial processes, and again, this is agriculture and land use change. So I want to talk very quickly about what a real solution looks like. Firstly, 
we have to eliminate the four things which we have no feasible substitute for. And that is ruminants, beef and lamb, which completely dwarf the emissions of other foods um, because they have two stomachs and in the front stomach they digest uh, cellulose and release methane. Um, uh, flying and shipping, in effect, we have no feasible option for having fuel for flying. It's just possible we'll have some for shipping. There are some battery-powered uh, ferries operating in the Norwegian fields, and the, the sort of volume and the mass of the battery required for intercontinental freight is feasible. You could get it onto the ship. And cement is the last one. There are currently no options whatsoever for making cement with no emissions in the whole world. There is nothing currently available in that area. So those four things we have to learn to live without. Everything else we have to electrify. So we have to electrify transport. And for example, in the UK, we now have a law that says it will be illegal to sell uh, non-electric cars from 2030 onwards. And no major car company in the world is continuing to develop combustion engines. So the future of cars is electric. That's a certainty. Um, we are obviously going to, that will develop into trucks. Um, space heating is going to become electric heat pumps. Gas boilers will go, and I think that's the next major bit of regulation in the UK, is to ban uh, gas boilers. Um, and then we could make steel, but using electric recycling, blast furnace steel can't continue because of its emissions. We can electrify other uh, sources of heat and power used in industry. Um, and then uh, I think I've sort of got around the chart there. But from what I've already said, we aren't going to have as much electricity as we want. We're going to have roughly half the amount that we'd like to have. So there is then a huge business opportunity. I've come up with two here. The first is to electrify everything that's currently not electrified. The second is to convert what we do into an efficient use of electricity. Since uh, the 1990 reference date for the UK's Climate Change Act, every year the average weight of the cars on the road in the UK has gone up. And we've now reached the point that the average car in the UK weighs 12 and a half times the passengers inside it. The only country in the world that has seen a reduction in the weight of its cars, would you believe it, is America. And that's because their cars were so heavy in 1990 that even they worked out that a small reduction in weight was a good idea. Cars, we don't need to have a car that's 12 and a half times our, the weight of the people inside it. That's not in the United Nations Charter on Human Rights. But we haven't even begun to think about it yet. There is a business opportunity in being sensible about delivering cars that people want to drive, but which weigh less. How difficult is that? Uh, so, electrifying it, halving the amount of electricity. But then uh, we aren't going to be able to deliver all of the same services that we have. So that creates a whole range of service substitution opportunities. We've learned a lot about Zoom in the last two years, but what hasn't happened yet is that the reality that Cisco can produce with their telepresence system, which is the best virtual conferencing I've seen, could be in every Costa, in every Cafe Nero, in every chain restaurant. For people who like flying, we could imagine a restaurant where there are uncomfortable armchairs that shake and you sit and people in uniform give you meals in small packages while you're looking at a Cisco screen as somebody in Australia being shaken and delivered the same meal in foil wraps. You could have the whole flying experience without actually having to go through the discomfort of it. You could even try and do it in a way that was uh, comfortable. Um, only by putting a screen in there. I'm British, so I don't like touching people, so it's actually very easy uh, for me to move that way. 
I could go around the whole area, and I've put a, a flyer for a report called Entrepreneurs Not Emissions at the back, because thinking, rethinking the way that we do this. On average, every building in the UK is overbuilt by a factor of two relative to the safety standards that control what a safe building looks like. And commercial buildings are being knocked down on average between 40 and 50 years after they're put up. We don't have to live that way. Uh, that's simply a habit that we've got into. But delivering services differently, delivering great design, and then maintaining buildings as we do here, this whole, and I honestly think the University of Cambridge is essentially a cluster of nice buildings with a few other socially inept people working around inside them. Um, but the buildings are what defines us here, and we know that we can keep them going if we want to. So that's the beginnings. Let me give a few more concrete examples. Vestas uh, obviously were first into the wind turbine market, supported by the Danish government's very sensible investment program in the 1970s, and remained the number one producer of wind turbines until very recently they were overtaken by a Chinese group. Tesla was unprofitable for 18 years because they made a bet on the future of electric cars, and now, as you know, they're the most highly valued car company in the world. So we've got some precedents here for having foresight to see the way that business uh, can grow when it's compatible with a real uh, description of what zero emissions might look like. We've got a whole string of reports coming out of the UK Fires Consortium. This is six universities and a large number of industry partners that I lead, where we're trying to spot the innovation and growth opportunities here. Um, so, for example, we've just released one on the energy industry, just to give an idea of the scale of uh, growth in efficiency, in delivering things like small vehicles, in time-shifting demand. You, that's a bit technical, but you know that wind turbines only generate electricity when the wind's blowing. So there will be a big market in the services and kit required to match demand and supply over time, uh, regardless of the fact that the, the aggregate supply won't be enough. In delivering electrification, only one-third of the UK's rail network is currently electrified. We've got 28 years to electrify the rest of it. And if you think about that, it, currently it's being done as a set of craft one-off projects. But if you took that on, there's an economy of scale that nobody's yet captured. Uh, and that's true for almost all electrification opportunities. Uh, there's obviously a lot of stuff that has to be decommissioned or repurposed. Um, and we know that there's a lot around generation. That's just electricity. And we've done a whole series of reports which you can monitor. I'd be glad to tell you more in another format if that was uh, useful. But the sitting duck, the massive opportunity that nobody has got hold of yet is retrofit. In the UK, in most northern European climates, it is absolutely clear, and every government, uh, every political party agrees that we have to retrofit our houses, uh, our building stock, in order to get to uh, efficient, low energy performance. Here is an example of it being done. We know technically it can be done. These are two semi-detached houses in Manchester. But the project cost for these two, obviously, middle-class houses was £500,000 per house. That is ridiculous. But if you live in the UK, you will recognize that when uh, somebody in your house decides that the kitchen needs to be refurbished, there are many options. It's not a preference I've ever expressed myself, but those with whom I live have expressed that preference. Uh, small bone and devices is a way of absorbing all of your savings and indeed future earnings uh, if that was the preference of people with whom you live. But there are many other ways of getting there. The IKEA of retrofit has not even started yet. But if I make an estimate that we can get this cost down to £50,000 per average house in the UK, I think that's sensible. 
and with that I could cut the energy bill to one-tenth of what it is today, then roughly that would work for consumers. That is a million houses per year for the next 28 years. That is a 50,000 million revenue business with currently no entrants. There is nobody playing in that space. Well, obviously, I'm interested, so I've got uh, a couple of people starting with me to try and parameterize what the business would be look like, where the economies of scale are, but you could activate it. Uh, we're waiting for somebody to grab hold of that one because it's desperately needed and everybody agrees that we have to have it. Okay, so let me finish off with this question of valuation. You can't tell at the moment. I hope I've given you a basis for interrogating the companies that you're investing in. Only three questions. Biomass, carbon storage, and non-emitting electricity. How much do you need and how much have you secured? Well, what we thought was it would be great if there was a balance sheet mechanism that allowed a company to show that they had actually secured access to that. So is there a procurement agreement for the three zero emissions resources? So that's our idea of a ZERPA, a zero emissions resource procurement agreement, which looks a bit like a contract for difference, which is the way that the UK government has uh, promoted the development of uh, wind and solar, for example, in the UK. So we could imagine that um, uh, at the moment, co contracts for difference uh, here are supplied where the government uh, underwrites a contract between the supplier and the electricity market to set a minimum price to allow the investment case to be made to allow uh, installations to grow. Well, what would happen if instead of that, the government certified the obligation but sold it on to the end users, whether it's British Airways, Shell, or ArcelorMittal? And that's what we've proposed with the Zerpas. So there is a resource user, uh, a market for resources, and the provision of the three zero emissions resources. So either you wait for the spot market, but we know prices are going to be high and sky high as we run out, or you secure future agreement now for your supplies in 20 years' time, and if you could do that, then the investors would be able to look at your balance sheet and say, yes, that is a credible supply. Um, I've put the report on Zerpas at the back. It's something that we're working on. We developed it with the uh, Mark Carney's COP26 finance team. And I don't know if it's the only way of developing a mechanism for real valuation, but you need something like that. You need some financial way of verifying that the rhetoric is actually underwritten. So in the interest of time, let me go back to my first slide. The ambitions of today's climate policy and the incumbent high-emitting companies cannot possibly be delivered because we don't have enough non-emitting electricity, biomass, or carbon storage. We don't have it now, and we won't have it in 2050. You currently have no mechanism to test those, the rhetoric of these companies, but I hope I've given you a basis for at least quizzing them. And there are huge growth opportunities when we face that resource constraint and think, could we live well with the, half the amount of electricity? Of course we could. We've had 100 years of having low-cost, abundant energy, especially in the developed economies. Uh, could we live differently without any question? And can we prosper? Absolutely, yes. Thanks. Thanks, Dwayne. Both hugely informative and, uh, and entertaining uh, start to the day, thank you, Julian. And, and you have a fan also in Bill Gates who, uh, who rates your book, Sustainable Materials with Both Eyes Open, as one of the top five books that he read in that year. Uh, so uh, maybe Bill Gates will jump on the funding of your uh, home uh, retrofitting, I don't know. We'll make room for questions. We are against time, but uh, we'll have two or three questions. Who'd like to go first? 
Excellent, thank you. Can you just announce yourself, please? Name and organisation. Yep. <clears throat> Mark Fawcett from Nest. Uh, really interested in the, the model about retrofitting, insulating houses. Uh, we've obviously got people gluing themselves to motorways to make that happen. Um, how is it going to be funded? And, and how's the planning going to work? I own a listed property, they won't let me, my Green Council won't let me insulate my house. So, you know, there's a lot of barriers and vested interests here. Oh, absolutely right. But um, there were barriers and vested interests when IKEA started their business. So that is what the business case is, surely, is to come over those. Um, I think the local council type problems are going to go uh, because they're so irrational and not compatible with national climate targets. So within the UK, I think the audit committee will sort that out eventually, as it did, for example, with the Heathrow third runway extension. So slowly we're going to see more energy in that area. Um, I, I agree with you about the shortage of service suppliers, though at the moment I, I also own a listed house and can't find somebody to come and give me the first consultation, which is partly why I've got two PhD students starting. It's not that they're going to work entirely on my house, but I thought <laughs> as a case study it would be really helpful if they worked. <laughs> okay. Excellent, thank you. Next question. Thank you. Table one, your name and organisation. Hello, Emma Henningsen. Um, AP7 Swedish Pension Fund. Um, I wonder if you can say something about um, the proportion of companies which have, so from what I hear, companies need to change, they, they need to invest significantly in emissions reduction uh, technologies where it's available. What proportion of, of large companies would you estimate have that potential to do it? I mean, you mentioned cement, no-go, and a couple of other sectors, but um, if, we, if you take those away, uh, how many, what proportion have, have the potential to be able to do it if they invested? Do you mean the financial potential to do that? Uh, te technological potential to be able to go close to net zero. Okay, um, mm. so net zero is an unhelpful, illusory phrase. Yeah. Um, there okay. are no negatives, so it's real zero we're talking about, or absolute zero was our phrase. Um, I looked at that with, uh, I was on an advisory board with Liberty House, Sanjeev Gupta's steel company. So uh, other reasons that that doesn't look so good at the moment. Um, but I got in there because he was after that question. Uh, the blast furnace steel operators, ArcelorMittal, Tata Steel Europe, uh, and so on, are talking nonsense about hydrogen-powered steel making, but they've got no plan to come up with enough emissions-free hydrogen. Uh, because that needs electricity or carbon storage. Um, so the correct route for the steel industry is to invest in electric arc furnace uh, recycling powered by renewables. And actually that's a really good match for various other reasons. The business case still didn't stack up in the UK, so Gupta was trying to strong arm the government into underwriting loans uh, to allow him to invest in electric arc furnaces. And I think that problem is going to persist uh, because, uh, for example, in the steel industry, there is a lot of hidden subsidy around the world in that area, and there's global overcapacity. So prices of the high-emitting steel are going to keep going down to try and knock out any new entrant. But, you know, how many of the problems can we solve at the same time? I think it's easier to go to the government to say, we've got a business that's going to grow if only you strengthen the regulation rather than to say, strengthen the regulation and then the businesses will follow. So I think for me at the moment, it's more important that the entrepreneurship comes first 
to give the lever to governments to follow. Last question, table five, three. Thanks, Niall Quinn of Pictay. Thank you, Colin. I think you've introduced me, sir. Um, Julian, thank you. Fantastic presentation. Uh, one of the things that strikes me is uh, what you've confronted us with really is a, a shocking scenario. I think it's fair to say the majority of the people in the country within which we are at the moment don't recognize this. Um, in your dealings with governments and other agencies, to what extent do they recognize it? Are they even trying to address the issue? Because I would think about your first slide, effectively it seems to me you're saying they're not trying to address it. And if, when we think about something like Tesla, that's a visionary with a lot of capital prepared to put it at risk. But I would contend a lot of people who buy Teslas, it's because they're a cool car. It's, it's nice that the electricity, you know, is, you know, I'm not using a fossil fuel, but where that electricity comes from in, in many circumstances is a fossil fuel, right? So I don't know that necessarily people are compelled because of your vision to do that. So is it your estimation that this really will require individual states to take action and impose this? Or would it be like the 1970s, and perhaps we're seeing that now, that price moves in energy markets force change? This is coming from someone who is particularly uh, upset now because he thought electric aeroplanes were on their way. And, uh, and, and Niall is responsible for 7% of the world's emissions from his personal <laughs> flying. So, uh, <laughs> um, there were several aspects of your question. So uh, the UK government is utterly unrealistic in what it's saying. The zero carbon strategy that was put out just ahead of COP26 uh, was written in clever language. Uh, with the word ambition used for these numbers and the word commitment used for these numbers. Uh, it was amazing, the gap between them. We have an ambition to have 200 gigawatts of emissions-free hydrogen production, and in 2023, we'll decide whether to fund a 0.25 gigawatt hydrogen facility. That was the, the kind of gap between it. Uh, I'm amazed at how long the apparently independent bodies within government, the chief scientists, are allowing them to get on with it uh, or to get away with this nonsense. And I guess that's because the word independent doesn't have the same meaning that I recognize uh, within government. But I get the feeling that they're beginning to realize that it's just not true. It's not going to happen. There isn't going to be a magic supply of hydrogen, which is what the UK government is banking on uh, at the moment. Um, this question of how it comes about and is it, uh, is it entrepreneurship followed by goodwill or is it from co-benefits like having a cool car or whatever, uh, we almost haven't got time to wor worry about that. The problem that I started with about starvation has started, hasn't it? We already are seeing migration as a hot topic. It's going to grow and grow. We're going to get an idea of a food price shock this year with the loss of Ukrainian and Russian wheat exports. So we're right in the middle of a food price shock now, but it's going to grow a lot this year. And it's going to keep coming. So the rate at which the economic shocks are going to rush through the system is just going to keep increasing. And I think I go back to that. There is no business as usual. So yeah, it's difficult now. Um, probably the things that we need to start are currently more expensive. But there is a market. There's somebody there who wants to retrofit their listed building, as I do and would pay over the odds in order to do it because we know it's the right thing to do. So I think we can get going. Um, and if, if you like, the 18 years of unprofitability at Tesla is quite a good flag to the long-term investment case. 
So to my taste, you as a group are more aligned with this than the government are uh, because your timescales match better. And I think you've probably got the potential to have much more impact uh, at the moment than they have. Well, Julian, I'm uh, afraid we have to wrap it up. We could listen to you all day and, uh, and I really appreciate you uh, beginning our, our conference today where we deepen the conversation with the next session on energy and we will go through uh, into, in, more deeply into climate as the day goes on. Uh, thanks for all the work that you're doing. It's important work. I hope your comments today uh, about your useless government don't have you get further defunded um, in, 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 in your universities, but I, I think you need to be brave uh, to make a difference. Mm. Uh, please put your hands together for Julian.